Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Father, we thank You for the privilege that we have to call upon Your name. This morning, we study a very important text. Its implications for our lives are massive. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to each of us. As a lowly human flawed vessel, I feel the weight of insufficiency. I am painfully aware of my own wickedness and weakness. I cannot properly expound this sacred text on my own. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would cleanse my heart, that you would cleanse my mind, that you would purify my motivations. May your spirit anoint me to be nothing but your messenger. We need to hear from You, and we desire to hear only from You. Journeying through these psalms, Lord, has blessed us immensely. It's edifying for us to ponder Your glory and to praise You. Today we walk through a psalm of travail and humiliation. It offers us a path to restore joy, glory, hope, gratitude. I pray that you might use it powerfully in each of our lives for our benefit, Lord, and for your honor. I pray that your Spirit will not allow any of us to deceive ourselves. Show us the sin, the iniquity, the transgressions present within our own hearts and minds. Free us from personal pride that we may know Your forgiveness. May we all sing with David this morning, Create in me a clean heart, that we might show transgressors Your ways, that we might proclaim Your faithfulness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an infamous psalm. You've no doubt read it. You've heard it in the past. It is a very serious psalm. It may be one that you tend to uh, ignore or avoid for lots of different reasons. I think it's important as we open this psalm to understand the context, why it's here, what it has for us this morning, what it speaks to. And to do that, we have to think first and foremost about David's problem. David clearly is the writer. He's known to be the writer, accepted as the writer of this psalm, of this prayer. So what was his problem? What's he addressing in his own life? Well, if your Bible is like mine, it has a little caption there at the beginning that tells you what the context is. This had to do with David's sin with Bathsheba and subsequent confrontation from the prophet Nathan. Those events are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Let me just give you the recap, the summary version. Those chapters will tell us that in the time when kings normally went out 
to engage in military exercise and battle that David did not go. Who knows why David had allowed apathy, indifference to creep into his life, or he was bored. Maybe he was just bored with the task at hand. And he decided that it would be better for him to stay in Jerusalem. And that's what he did. So he sent out his troops, but he stayed behind. And then we're told that while he was there, one day he got up off his couch, he walked out onto the, to the roof of his palace, and that he was surveying. Maybe he was following some kind of example that we see in Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Maybe he was admiring the kingdom, that his heart had drifted. and He was admiring all that was under his authority, under his rule. But something happened while he was there. Mind you, he's out of position. He's not where he should be. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's allowed pride and indifference to creep in. And then he saw something. He saw a woman bathing herself, and he was immediately attracted to her. He inquired about her, and he used his position and his leverage to have her brought to him. Another man's wife, he was clearly told. She belongs to Uriah the Hittite. She is his wife. But David didn't even hesitate. He had her brought to him, and he lay with her, is what the Scripture says, and then dismissed her. Sent her back. The scripture says that she conceived, that she became pregnant because of his act. Historians tell us that this event probably happened, and maybe for a year, maybe as much as a year and a half, David wrestled with his own guilt, and that he was not the same David that we might expect. He was grieved by sin, or bothered by sin, or bound up by sin, but he was not the man who was intent on honoring God, worshiping God, because he didn't have the freedom to do that. Maybe he didn't know how to get out of it. Maybe he didn't know how to deal with it. But God sent the prophet Nathan to David, with a message. Nathan came in with a parable. He told him about a rich man who had flocks galore. He had all kinds of sheep at his disposal. And there was a poor man who had only one. One! And that a traveler came by, and the rich man, in order to provide hospitality for this traveler, took the sheep belonging to the poor and needy man rather than give out of his abundance food for this traveler. David was incensed when he heard this. He said, this is wrong. This man has an abundance. Why would he take the one sheep belonging to a poor man and use that to provide nourishment for this traveler, for hospitality for the traveler? Nathan obviously agreed, but looked at David and said, Thou art the man. 
You've done just as this poor man. You had everything. God has given you everything, and yet you took what did not belong to you. And it devastated David. Psalm 51 is the fruit from that encounter, as David was broken by his own sin. There are three words used in this passage that are worth us making mention of this morning that refer to the same event or act or attitude in David. He writes, he uses the word sin, he uses the word iniquity, and he uses the word transgression. Why three different words? Are they different? Are they the same? Some would say that culturally speaking, the more words that you have that deal with the same subject, the more important that subject is in the culture. And in the Hebrew, sin has a plethora of words that apply to it. An important subject, an important topic among the Hebrew people. Good news is that there's a plethora of words that deal with grace as well. Another important topic. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Let's try to see if we can make some sort of distinction between these three words before we actually get in to David's prayer. Sin simply means to miss the mark. In Greek, it is harmatia. It means to miss the, tar- the target, to miss the mark. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if I took, I'm not, I'm not a bow uh, expert, I'm not a bow hunter, I have shot a bow, and it's harder than it looks. It's a lot harder than Robin Hood lets, leads us to believe. But if I put a target on this front pew beside Craig, Craig might want to move, but I could start shooting at that target with my arrows. <laughs> yeah, then that's going to hit Lori <laughs> or Richard or Marion in the very back. But if I start shooting at that, bu- that, that target and practicing, eventually I might hit the center. I might hit what I'm supposed to hit. If you move it to the back, it's going to get harder. If you put it out at the bell on the front of the property, it's probably going to be almost impossible for me to hit. Maybe I might get lucky at some point and hit it. If you put it in downtown Alpharetta or Roswell, it's going to be impossible, isn't it? If you put it in downtown Atlanta, hang it down there on the Gold Dome Capitol building, there's no way I'm going to hit that target with an arrow from here. But it gets even more difficult. Let's say the target is the sun, the sun that's shining so brightly today. I fire my arrow Even if it were in some way, if it could pass out of our atmosphere, if it could escape gravity 
and get into space and started traveling toward the sun, at some point it's going to be extinguished by sheer heat, isn't it? It's going to fall into dust and disappear. This is what sin does for us in conjunction with our relationship with God. We cannot possibly hit the mark of righteousness and holiness that God requires of us, that He demands of us. There's nothing we can do. You see, we're born in this fallenness. Sin means that we miss the mark. You're not sinners because you do wrong. You do wrong because you are sinners. By nature, you're born that way. You're simply doing what you were born to do. Not what God made you to do, but what you have become through fallenness, through depravity. Iniquity. Iniquity means twistedness. It means to be bent. I'm not, I'm not much of a carpenter. Some of you are probably good carpenters, but uh, I, you know, I'm thankful that today when you do carpentry work, usually you usually use a power drill and screws because those nails are hard to drive. You know, you watch an experienced carpenter and he drives those nails, a couple of licks and boom, that nail's where it needs to be. Me, I hit the nail and it's bent. You know? And you throw it out and you get another one, right? But if you try to take that nail and straighten it and use it again, it just doesn't work, does it? You might, you might accidentally get it straight enough to, and hit it and drive it enough to get it in. But once you bend it, it's pretty much useless. This is the picture here, iniquity. Our iniquity. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was bent towards sin. Twisted. Bent to be a rebel. Impossible for him to be holy. No longer capable of doing righteously as God demands. That's why talking about man's free will is not really helpful in this matter. Because you see, once fallen, once we were, once Adam fell and all of us fell in him, you see, you can say, yes, you can do whatever you will. The problem is, your will is always to do sin. We don't will righteousness. We don't want righteousness. We will what's inside of us, what we're bent toward. We're not capable of willing to do what God desires. And then he uses transgression. This word means to trespass. One who crosses a line or climbs a fence that is off limits. In this instance, David crossed a boundary. He took something that belonged to someone else. A man who was ruler over a nation who had everything at his disposal. And yet, he transgressed. A trespass can be willful, and it can be unintentional. In David's case, it was willful. Trespass can also mean to fall away after being close to something. Peter trespassed against the Lord when he denied him. The Lord had warned him, hadn't he? 
In fact, just hours before, he commended Peter. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you that I am the Christ, but the Spirit. Blessed are you. Peter must have swelled with pride. The Lord warned him, you must pray because Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And before the night was over, Peter denied the Lord. He transgressed the relationship. Aaron and Israel willfully transgressed against God when they formed the golden calf. Gave up on God, doubted God, abandoned God, and formed their own God, a God of their own making, this golden calf, willfully. Samson intentionally broke his Nazarite vow, touching a dead lion's carcass. If you knowingly, and you've done this, every one of you have done this, I'll admit it, I've done it. You see that red light, it turns yellow. When it turns yellow, what does that mean? It means that you're supposed to slow down because stop is coming, right? What do you do? You hit the accelerator, don't you? Yeah. I can beat it. I can beat it. If you knowingly run a stop sign or a stoplight, that's willful transgression. If you lie, if you lie, you know you're lying. And you can lie by simply omitting to tell the truth, right? I heard Adrian Rogers say one time that you can lie by the raised eyebrow. He told a story about having a headlight out on his car and being stopped by policemen. He knew the headlight was out, but the policeman came up and said, Do you know that your headlight's burned out? And he said, I have a headlight out? Willful transgression. Willful trespass. If you disregard authority, it's transgressing. David's psalm weaves these three concepts together. David understands the serious nature of his offense before God. Most of the time we try to soften it, don't we? Okay, I didn't do what was right, or I messed up, or, you know, I'm sorry I offended you. He missed God's mark. He willfully saw, coveted, lusted, took Bathsheba. He crossed forbidden lines and boundaries, took another man's wife, took another man's life. Then I want you to notice a shocking declaration that occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 2. After Nathan confronted David in his sin and raised this to his attention, he says something to David. And this comes in the 13th verse of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. This is what he said. And Nathan said to David, quote, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now, get your mind around this. 
David, the man after God's own heart, drifted into apathy, into indifference, was not where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing, lusted after another man's wife, calculated and leveraged the situation, then raped her. Yes, I think he forced himself upon her. He lied to cover up his sin by plotting and conspiring. He arranged for her husband's murder, put his entire army at risk with his careless decision, and the baby which came as a result of his sin would die. And God looks at him and says, I've put your sin away. You shall not die. What kind of a just judge is this? This appears to be scandalous. Would you agree? If this happened to your daughter, if this happened to your wife, and God said, I'm not going to put you to death, I'm not going to judge you, how would you feel about that? How can the just pass over rape and murder and lying this way. Paul helps us to understand. In Romans chapter 3, I quoted the first part, 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means to make it right, satisfy. Satisfy the debt. Satisfy the wrath of God. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness. Listen carefully. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It sounds like, it seems like, in David's instance, that God is just possibly sweeping it under the rug. But that's not what He's doing, is He? He's allowing David to live, to avoid Justice because Christ, when He died on the cross, He took David's sin with Bathsheba and all the subsequent sin that goes with it upon Himself, and He is giving to David His righteousness. <laughs> he exchanged the righteousness his righteousness for David's great sin. John Piper said this. He said, The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough, and the glory of God that it upholds is great enough that God is vindicated in passing over David's adultery and murder and lying. Incredible. Incredible. So now you know what has set the scene for this, you now know what God has done to forgive David, to set him up, to rejoice in his own forgiveness, 
Then I want you to notice David's response. That's what this is. Psalm 51 is David's response to God's great gift of grace and forgiveness. You can respond a couple of ways. You can say, I will deny, I'll I'll ignore, I'll guard my sin, I'll protect it. But if left unchecked, it leads to a state of willful sin and no fear of God. We read in Romans chapter 1 last week of that devolution, that digression that occurs. When we embrace sin and hold on to sin and refuse to acknowledge it as sin, and God gives us over to a reprobate mind. You become hardened. Eli's sons provide a perfect example of this. If you're familiar with them in the book of 1 Samuel, this is what God told Samuel as to why he was moving away from Eli and was going to use Samuel moving forward. This is what he said. And I declare to him, Eli, that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Done forever. Gave them over to a reprobate mind, heart. No one here wants to follow that path. Not when there's a blessed alternative available, right? None of us want to be found there. David offers this prayer of confession and repentance. And it's based upon God's nature of grace and compassion. It's motivated by a desire to restore and renew his fellowship with God. He's not presuming upon God. He's resting in God's promise. Notice what he does. First we see his cry. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. You just sang those words. Did they come from the heart? Or were they just words rolling off our lips? It's a threefold. It's urgent. Look. Have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. It's tripled. David knows that this is a big ask. (laughs) Lord, I need your mercy. I desire your mercy. I do not deserve it. I am wicked. Have mercy according to you, to your steadfast love, to your faithfulness. Have mercy according to your abundant mercy. There isn't mercy anywhere else that's sufficient to atone for what I've done. To allow me to avoid your judgment. He's appealing to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Listen. 
the Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? This occurred, this conversation, this statement that God made came right after the golden calf incident. He and Moses have had this dialogue, this discussion going on. What would happen to Israel and Aaron because of the sin that they have engaged in? God's been violated. Listen, this is right on the heels of the giving of the law, the covenant, and its stipulation saying, this is how my people shall live before me, God says. And the people said, yes, 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 we will do it all. And just like that, they broke it. They, they, they rejected God's stipulations in their behavior. Moses went up on the mountain. They began to give up on him. They said, we don't know if he's coming back. We don't know what's happened to him. Maybe God has devoured him. We need, a, we need somebody we can see to follow. And so they made this golden calf. And this is what they believed had delivered them. This was what they would worship. God sent Moses back down, and Moses shattered the law, you remember? And they struggled over that, Moses realizing that they deserved to die, but he pleaded with God. God never intended to obliterate them, and that's what he's telling Moses. I am a compassionate God, a God of mercy and grace. I have plans and purposes that you can't understand They may, bring, they may bring some fruits of their disobedience upon themselves, even to third generations. People may suffer because of the decisions they've made, as David would, bringing grief to his entire household. Seeing this young baby that was innocent in all this, dying as a result of his sin. But God said, I am a God who forgives. And I think David maybe had this in his mind as he's writing this prayer. He's understanding what God has provided in His incredible compassion and grace. This is who He is, even though David didn't deserve it. David knew that many are not forgiven, though some will know His mercies. And he pleads for this mercy for himself. He pleads for cleansing from his sin. He's not content just to be forgiven for what has transpired, but he is asking for preservation, perseverance for the future. David is gripped and broken by his failure, so he doesn't ever want it to happen again. It's not presuming upon God's grace. Now, it's important, I think, that we make some distinction here. Some people think that once they 
turn to Christ and they are forgiven of sin and they are redeemed by Christ, that there's no need for them to go before Him and seek repentance of sin day by day, that all their sin has now been covered. And so they have a license to live any way they want. That's not true. I believe there's no doubt in my mind that David had a relationship, a redemptive relationship with God prior to his sin. But David understands that sin, while it can separate us from God forever and does until Christ reconciles us to God through His his atoning work on the cross, that even for those that have been adopted into the family of God, made a part of God's family, never to be separated from Him again, but they can lose that all-important fellowship with God. And that sin does this. It becomes a wedge that drives us away from the intimacy that we have with God. And David has experienced this in the months since his sin and before Nathan's confrontation. He's pleading to repent and turn. Have mercy on me, O God. Don't don't judge me as I deserve. His lament in verses 3 through 6. It's been said by Alan Ross that the awareness of sin hangs over the sinner like a dark cloud until it's forgiven. I think David would concur with that. Verse 4, I have sinned. Confession is acknowledging our sin before God. Confession is agreeing with God's evaluation of our heart and life. If God calls it sin, then it is sin indeed. There's nothing we can say to change what it is. It's saying the same thing. Our world says they had an affair. God says, thou hast committed adultery. You have committed fornication. Our world says he or she had a terrible upbringing. God says he or she is a rebel filled with wickedness and evil. Our world says he or she means well. God says he or she committed treason against my holiness. Confession means we say what God says about our sin. David says, I have sinned and I am without excuse. He goes further. My sin is ever before me. He couldn't turn it off. (laughs) He couldn't hide from it. He couldn't get away from its constant whispering in his ear and gnawing at his soul. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, this is not to say we don't sin against others, that we don't offend others, but our sin, first and foremost, is an offense against the Holy God. My rebellions, my sin are always haunting me. He has no defense. Therefore, he says, whatever God decides to do is just.
Most of us follow Adam and Eve's pattern, don't we? (laughs) This woman that thou gave me caused me to sin. This serpent that you made came into the garden and deceived me and I sinned. We even blame God. Where is God when evil occurs? Why does God allow evil into this world? Why doesn't God eliminate all the bad things? Why did God allow me to make that decision? Where was God? You say, no, those are just questions. No, they're not. They're accusations. They're accusations pointing to God and saying, this is your fault. If you are who you say you are, who you claim to be, why are you allowing this? Verses 7 through 12, we find His forgiveness. Cleanse me, purge me with hyssop. This herb, this herb is mentioned often in Scripture. God's people were instructed to use it in the ceremonial cleansing. The priests would take it, and if a house had, had disease infested in it, they would ceremonially take the hyssop, and they would sprinkle the house ceremonially to, to bring cleansing. It was used symbolically in the tenth plague when God said the death angel would visit Egypt and take the firstborn of every household and they were instructed to put blood on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over and not bring judgment. It served, uh, the hyssop could serve almost like a paintbrush to apply the blood. Now, David's not necessarily referring to a physical cleaning, but cleaning the heart, changing the heart. He sees God as his ultimate priest. Forgive him, cleanse him from this sin. Wash me, he says, and I will be whiter than snow. Snow's white, isn't it? Snow's white when it first comes down. It gets dirty after it hits this earth. There's a message in there somewhere. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Notice here David asks for assurance in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness again, he says. Let let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David's saying, for all these months, I could feel, I could sense the separation, the lack of intimacy we have. And he says, if indeed you forgive, let me know the gladness of your presence again. Let me know to worship you with joy with true intimacy again. Tell me I'm forgiven and that I can enjoy your presence. The broken bones are not literal, but speaks, I think, to the weight of guilt that he's been dealing with. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Remove the charges from my account. This word blot out 
this term blot out, it means to scrape off, to peel it off. Years ago, I bought a shotgun, a used shotgun. Don't worry, got no intentions for it. I evidently bought it from a, dick, a duck hunter. A friend of mine helped me get it, and it was painted green. You know, I mean, painted green. It was ugly. And so I set about the task of trying to remove that iniquity <laughs> from that gun. Now, I couldn't scrape it or sand it lest I mar the surface of what it was originally meant to be. So it took a lot of care and a lot of reading up and studying before I did it. But I worked and I removed all that. And you look at it today, you'd never know that there was ever any green paint on it. Restored it to its original beauty. David says, blot out, restore. Don't let this be to my account. Now this is not this can't happen unless Christ takes it upon himself. Which in David's case is true. Create in me a clean heart, a purified mind and heart. Put me in a right spirit, a sanctified disposition that is steadfast. David saying, don't let me sin again. Keep me faithful, enable me to persevere. Never to make such a careless decision again. How many of you like those shows where they take those old houses and restore them or flip them and, or they do it with cars? I mean, Dan, you do that with cars and things. You, you like those shows? You like seeing something taken that's old and dilapidated and someone has some vision and they go in there and do the work and turn it into something really nice? You like that? Well, listen. You are that house. You are that car. As sinners, we need to be restored. We need to be made new again. Romans 12 says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world which is going to continue to leave you in a dilapidated, deteriorating condition. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Titus 1.9, He that is the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or in healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? To reform, to transform us, to renew us through the power of God's Word, to make us what He intended us to be from the beginning. This is why we're so passionate here about God's Word. What you put into your mind and heart forms it. What you put into your mind and heart shapes it. Feeds it. Verse 11, cast me not away. Yes. Cast me not away. He knows he deserves it. But by God's character, mercy, grace, he says, enable me to stay close. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon 
an individual, a person for a specific assignment or season. God's Spirit even visited upon King Saul for a season to empower him to do God's bidding, to do God's will. But when Saul proved that he was unfaithful, God withdrew his spirit from him. And David seems to be saying the same thing. God, do not let me be like Saul. Don't take your spirit from me. I'm begging you. Allow your spirit to continue to rest upon me. Anoint me for the task that you've called me to do. Don't let this sin become that which robs me of your spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Make me faithful. This seems to be his overarching desire here. He's not presuming upon God's grace and forgiveness. He accepts it. But it seem, he seems to be driven by the fact that he could fail again. And this is driving him. Verses 13 through 17, we see his commitment. As God forgives and restores, David promises to worship, to serve faithfully. He vows, he will teach, he will praise, offer appropriate sacrifices, not works, but a broken heart, a contrite spirit, humility. Forgiveness enables us to teach others about God's grace. Forgiveness enables us to honor God for His graciousness. Forgiveness enables us to worship properly and effectively. We cannot approach Him through our own works, rituals, and traditions. We come through brokenness, through contrition. I don't care what else you try to bring. You can bring checks galore, gold galore. You can bring good works galore to the house of God week by week by week and seek to approach God. But God says, look, those things don't gain you admittance to me. Those things do not get my attention. But God says when you come with a broken, humble heart, recognizing the devastation of sin in your own life, the danger that it poses. And you recognize that apart from me, you have no forgiveness. You have no right to my presence. You have no purpose other than to be punished for sin. God says this, this is pleasing. You can apologize all day long, but if the heart is not genuine, it's useless. You've seen it with your kids, haven't you? <laughs> I see it with my grandchildren. One of them does something and mom says, tell him you're sorry. It comes begrudgingly. Sorry. That's not a broken or contrite spirit, is it? How often we approach God presuming that He should forgive us because we in some way are worthy of His attention and affection. Recognize the seriousness of our sin. Recognize the essence of our sin. It is treason, rebellion against God. 
we have transgressed His holiness for our own gratification. And when we recognize these things in truth, we will be broken. His hope, His desire, verses 18 and 19 there, that this work can again be blessed by the Lord, that those He serves will be blessed, that they will not be punished for His sin, but that God can somehow bring about restoration there, that He will be honored through it all and ultimately be pleased. Friends, as God searches your heart, as God examines your heart, and He does, whether you think He is or not, what does He find there? Is there are there things there that you have pushed away, that you have covered up, that you have in the back of that closet with the door locked, and think no one will ever know? God knows. You can't hide it from Him. And it costs you in your relationship, your intimacy with Him. Every day, in every way. And He is patient. He is kind. And He is generous and lavish with His mercy. Wanting and desiring for you to come with a broken and contrite heart and say, God, I have transgressed your holiness. Forgive me. Restore me. Fill me with your Spirit. Guard my ways against repeating these sins and continuing to serve myself rather than honor your glory. Dear friend, He's graciously provided this text and this message for you today. He's calling and urging us all to confess, to repent, and to know the joy and gladness of His true presence. The warmth of His smile. Will you confess your sin that condemns your soul? today. Father, we thank you. What a glorious, what a glorious text. Lord, David's prayer has been recognized. You have taken the awfulness of his treacherous deed and put it before every generation to see, to read, to understand, to gasp that He was capable of anything like this and reminded us in full view of how wonderful Your grace and mercy forgiveness really are. How complete. Lord, You see all of our sin as treachery. I pray this morning that Your Spirit would examine our hearts and souls and that You would show us those things that we are holding close, holding tightly as if we can keep them secret. I pray that your Spirit gently, lovingly, tenderly, but with great conviction will uncover those things in our sight this morning and we'll understand the scandalous nature of our sin and repent and receive your forgiveness and again 
know the glory and joy of your glad presence and intimacy in our life. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.